Well, a couple weeks ago, I kept receiving the same old internet story over and over again from about a dozen different people. And a few people sent it to me just to provoke me. Do people do that to you? And you know who you are out there. And a few others sent it to me just to ask me what I thought, and my son Bryce sent it to me. And Bryce wanted to know why I couldn't be like this guy. This guy right here. (laughs) This guy's evangelist, Jesse Duplantis. Now, Brother Jesse, let me tell you about Brother Jesse. He's a charismatic pastor from New Orleans. He leads a church. He's the founder of his own worldwide mission. He writes books. He hosts a television show. And his objective is clear. Quoting from his website, Our vision is world evangelism, and our desire is to see God bless everyone in every way. And that blessing applies, yes, to himself. Jesse is a leading voice in what is known as the prosperity gospel. Now, what is that exactly? It's typically found in some of the more Pentecostal strains of Protestantism, but it's not exclusive there. And it's quite simple and quite capitalistic, to tell you the truth. In a thesis statement, it is this. It is always, always the will of God to prosper you financially. It is God's will that you be healthier and wealthier. So if you are sick, you don't have enough faith. If you are poor, you don't have enough faith. And the best way to prove your faith is by giving up the little bit of wealth that you have. And plant a seed, as it were, so that God can give you back more. And it just so happens that these leading voices of the movement seem to be the very ones sanctioned by God to receive the little bit that you have. In other words, would Jesus wear a Rolex on his television show? Mail him a check. Donate online. Put it in the offering plate. God will give it back to you and then some, but first give it to me. Now, a generation ago, it was Oral Roberts, Ernest Angley. Did anybody ever watch Ernest on the radio, on the television? Lord Ernest. Reverend Ike. They held tent meetings and healing services. And today we've moved so, not so much about healing services as we've moved to mutual funds. Jesse Duplantis, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Paula White, to some degree, Joel Osteen, and apparently the supreme sign that you have made it in this business is the elusive, expensive, private jet. Now, three years ago, Creflo Dollar, who has the best name of any televangelist that has ever lived, Creflo Dollar. He's in the Atlanta area. I've seen him my whole life. He made news three years ago when he asked his followers for this, Gulfstream G650. Brother Creflo's net worth is now over $30 million. He drives a Rolls Royce, as does his wife. He has an $8 million home in Atlanta, a $2.5 million Manhattan apartment, various real estate holdings around the world. And he just couldn't use that old Gulfstream 3 that he had any longer. And so he raised the money to buy this, a $65 million technological marvel, the fastest private jet ever created. And then earlier this year, Kenneth Copeland got in on the action. 
He bought a Gulfstream 5 saying that he just couldn't fly commercial any longer. It bogged down his schedule and, quote, flying commercial is like getting into a long tube with a bunch of demons. Well, yeah. (laughs) So? And that brings me back to Jesse Duplantis. It's our brother Jesse's turn. Now, he already has three private jets. One he bought in 94, another in 2004, and God have mercy, he's been stuck with this current junker since 2006, and he needs a new one, and he asked his followers to donate $54 million for a Dassault Dassault Falcon 7X, because he has, quote, just been burning those other jets up for the Lord. And he added, I really believe that if Jesus was physically on the earth today, he wouldn't be riding no donkey. He'd be in an airplane preaching the gospel all over the world. And Jesse can't fly commercial either because, quote, when I speak to the Lord, I have to do it standing up and they won't let me unbuckle on a public airplane. We're going to have an offering now. Father's Day, and my son Bryce wants to know why I'm behind. We arrive at our text today from Philippians 1, a timely reading. Verses 12 through 19, listen to these words. I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the news, good news. Now, where is here for the Apostle Paul? He's in prison. Oh, ye of little faith, Paul. Why are you in jail? For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. And now the timely portion of the reading. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. Others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives, and they preach as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. But that doesn't matter whether their motives are false or genuine. The message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice, for I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance, the Word of God for the people of God. Two general reactions by Paul's associates to his imprisonment. First, there are those who see this man in jail, and he's wearing the chains of Christ, as it were, and they are emboldened. If this man can go to prison for the sake of Christ. Surely I can find some boldness to speak up. If this man can sacrifice this, surely in my heart of hearts, I can find a way to defend the cause of Christ and to do what is right. That's one reaction. The other reaction is not near as noble. It goes more like this. Paul is in prison, so it's my chance. 
He's the lead player for this team anyway. He's the public leader of the Christian church and the Christian movement in the first century. And if he's in prison, that means I can carve out my own little kingdom and get a name going for myself. The star player is on injured reserve. He's on the bench. We don't know when he's coming back, and it's my time to perform on the field so that everybody can look at me and what I am accomplishing. Those are the two reactions to Paul being in jail. They look at Paul's chains, and one group steps up their game honestly and courageously. The other group steps up their game as well. And while they use the name of Jesus, they are in it for themselves. And they are in it for what they can gain. And the most significant phrase Paul uses is verse 17. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition. It's an interesting word. Arethia is the Greek word. Ambition, contention, to strive, to fight. But it's a particular kind of striving. In the classical use of the word, it meant working for pay. It was a word that might be used of a mercenary, a person who is motivated not for the cause, but by the wages. They didn't profess an allegiance to their fellow fighters or to some lofty higher principle. They are in it for the cold, hard cash. Thank you very much. They are in it for themselves. And as the word was used over time, you'll love this, the word came to mean this, quote, canvassing for office. Oh, now we got it. Now we got it. Selfish ambition. What can I get out of it? How many votes can I get? How popular can I be? They don't stand on any principles of their own. They stand only on the fact to get as large a following as possible and to make a name for themselves. Are you with me? In Paul's day, he had what remains even to this day. You have those who are selfless, and you have those who are selfish. You have true believers, and you have rank opportunists. You have converts, and you have crooks. There are disciples, and there are mercenaries. There are those with a pure heart, and those who are full of themselves. There are those who are suffering saints, and there are still plenty of snake oil salesmen out there. And with just an ounce of discernment, many of the latter are easy to to see. But sometimes, oh, sometimes, it's hard to tell the difference until it's too late. Ever been there? With a polished, Jesus-y vocabulary, quoting all the right verses, saying all the right things, the most vicious wolves can arrive in sheep's clothing. It has always been that way, And it will always be that way. So you may ask, what does this have to do with the study of Philippians? I thought we were supposed to be learning to think like Jesus and to be like Jesus. Well, it does apply. There are those who preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, but as Paul says, that doesn't matter. Whether they have pure motives or not, I am going to keep rejoicing. Now, Over these weeks in Philippians, I do want to just keep pumping a little peace into your mind, if I can. Bit by bit, piece by piece. And maybe we can put it together. 
And here is another key ingredient from Philippians, just like gratitude that we talked about last week. There will always be those with impure motives. Always. Can you, can you say that? There will always be those with dollar signs in their hearts instead of love. There will always be those who talk like Jesus and act like the devil. There will always be those who quote and misquote the Scripture to justify the worst things morally and ethically. Recognize them. Don't be fooled by them. Call them out. But you're going to have to let it go. You cannot fix the motives of another person. You cannot. Try it. I dare you. And I'm not just talking about behavior. Try to change another person's motives, their heart. Try to make them different way down on the deep parts of their inner person. You think you're crazy now? You'll be certifiably madder than a hatter if you do that. The only way that Paul could continue to rejoice is because he knew there wasn't a lot he could do about why people were doing the things they were doing. Richard Rohr says it like this, Don't use all your energy being against people, groups, or institutions that will only keep your ego inflated and keep you feeling superior. Oh, we got a lot of that today. Practice quiet non-cooperation. Oppose what is wrong, but don't waste your time or your energy just being oppositional because we need positive spirituality, not just criticism. And he's right. If all we do is point out all that is wrong in others, you'll stay busy, but you'll never be happy. Never. Because the best response to what is wrong is to do what is right. The best response to what is wrong is to do what is right and using your energy and opportunity and power constructively. And here are the words of another spiritual giant, if you don't like Richard Rohr and the Apostle Paul. Chris Christopherson. Oh, there's a man. Trust me on this. Track and field star. Rhodes Scholar, Army Helicopter Pilot, Brenda Gale will tell you they're the best people in the world, songwriter, actor, highwayman, he should be regarded as a genius simply for writing Why Me, Lord, and Sunday morning coming down. Well, I woke up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head. It didn't hurt. I sing that every Sunday morning when I get up. Every Sunday morning for you. Not to mention me and Bobby McGee helped me make it through the night. Oh, a genius. Let me quote him. They're killing babies in the name of freedom. We've been down this sorry road before. Today they hold the power and the money and the guns. And they've just got me to wonder what my daddy would have done. So I've got to do what he told me. Tell the truth, stand my ground, and don't let the bastards get you down. Is that a little too forward for you? If it's a little too forward for you, then say the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity 
to accept the things I cannot change, but the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. There are things you can change about yourself, about your neighborhood, about your society. Do it. Work tirelessly to to that end. Pray for the courage to change the things that you can change. We need that in this world. Amen. We need the courage to build a more just, compassionate, merciful world. A world where we can keep hatred from the mighty and the mighty from the small. A world where we love our neighbors as we love ourselves because that fulfills the law of God and it includes the least of these, the refugees, the foreigner, and friends, the immigrant child. It includes them all. As you do unto the least of these, Jesus said, you have done it unto me. It would be better that a millstone be tied around your neck and cast into the sea than to cause a little one to stumble. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. Find what you can do and do it. But be warned, there are some things you cannot fix. You can't do anything about it. You can rage. You can cry. You can jump up and down and kick and scream. You can get caught up in the righteousness of these wonderful words, words like ought. That's what they ought to do. Should. Well, that's what people need. That's what people need to do. And you can throw all that at people that don't have the ears or the heart to hear you and you're not going to change a thing. Nothing. It's like my little dog, Mo. This little terrier. And he is terror, terrier, he's a terror terrier. 110%. And if you give him a, a doggy toy with a squeaker on the inside of it, he will kill himself to get it out. For days, he wouldn't sleep, wouldn't eat, wouldn't go out and poo, won't do nothing. I got to get this squeaker out of this toy. And I look around at our world and we get stuff that we can't do anything about and we're just like a dog chewing on that toy. And we dig and we chew and we slobber and we cry and we roll around on the floor. All of our life comes to a complete end because I've got to do this and we can't get it out. And we are stuck with it. And if you want to be miserable, you get a hold of something you can't do anything about and just keep shaking it. And just keep chewing on it. And just keep wrestling with it. And I guarantee you, you will end up embittered and miserable and unhappy and no one will want to be around you. Can I get an amen? The things you can do something about, go do it. The things you can't, it's going to take your joy away from you. The only way that Paul could continue to rejoice is he said, I have to give up on changing the motives of other people. I just need to do what I can do. Here's a final story about A.J. Mustay. Mustay was born in the Netherlands in the late 1800s. He immigrated to this country with his family when he was just a child. He graduated from Hope College in Holland, Michigan, graduated from Union Seminary in New York and became a pastor 
He was committed to nonviolence, so much so that when World War I broke out, his views led him to be fired from his church. But he stayed the course for the rest of his life, and he would eventually become director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, a Christian organization that thrives to this day working for peace in the world. When he was in his 80s, the Vietnam War was raging and tearing the country to bits, and he had lived long enough to see two world wars, Korea, Vietnam. And in his wisdom, every night he could be found in the streets of Washington, D.C., lighting a candle and saying his prayers. And a reporter came to him one evening and said, do you really think that lighting a candle and saying prayers in the street is going to change anything? Do you really think it can change the world? And Mustay gave this wise answer. I light a candle and I say my prayers, not to change the world, but so the world will not change me. Say your prayers. Light a candle. Stop cursing the darkness. Do what you can do. Let go of what you cannot do. Keep the world from shaping you into its image. And let us be shaped into the image of the peaceful, certain, living Christ.